this now, if I am counting correctly, is our fourth uh, sermon in Romans chapter 8, because we kind of slowed down here. And I realized as I was preparing this, there's just so much in Romans 8 that you could probably deal with each verse individually. Uh, But I hope that this will be a blessing to you as we consider what Paul has to say about prayer and how that ties into this whole passage about all things working together for good. It's a very well-known verse. It's one of those ones we quote often when we're in the midst of trials. Um, But it's interesting how Paul frames it within this context of prayer. So let us hear God's word now. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 30. Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches our hearts our hearts, knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your word. We ask now that your spirit would attend to its proclamation and show us the truth of Christ. May we see the face of Jesus in all his glory and seeing it be comforted and rest in the mercy of the gospel. Strengthen the faith of your people through your words now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the activities we do as Christians is we pray. We pray a lot. We do a lot of praying. It's Prayer is, is part of our worship liturgies on the Lord's Day. We, we pray personally. We pray before meals. We pray with our children. We pray with our spouses. We pray with our friends. And we pray by ourselves. Now, I'm sure that all of us here, though, would confess that we don't pray often enough. I'm confident I know I would admit that my praying is not what it should be. We could pray always more fervently, more frequently, with more focus. Not only that, but we struggle with why we should pray at all sometimes. Because we pray for one thing, and it doesn't happen. Or worse, the opposite of what we were praying for happens. And so we begin to question, what's the point of prayer? Does prayer even matter? Is God even listening when I pray? And then what makes then Christian prayer different than the prayers of, say, non-Christian people? How is my praying as a, a follower of Jesus Christ any different than that of a Muslim, a Jew, or a Buddhist, or even an atheist who is just sending out good vibes? Well, Christian prayer is different 
Because it's prayer that is grounded in real hope. It's grounded in the hope of Christ's resurrection, the hope of redemptive reality. Which means that even when you and I, we struggle to pray, even when our prayers are infrequent or we can't find the words to say, God still hears them and they are still effectual. They are still effective. They still accomplish what God wants them and intends them to accomplish. Now, it may seem that at times the only response to your praying is the silence of heaven. Or perhaps it feels that that God's only reply to your praying has been the, the cruel opposite of what you've been petitioning Him so fervently to do in your life. Well, I want to encourage you this morning that as a Christian, when it comes to your praying, it is not in vain, nor has been, nor will be. And the reason why your prayers are not empty, powerless words is because when you pray in the name of Christ Jesus, your praying is stitched into the very fabric of redemption itself. That's what we learn here in our text this morning. You see, the first thing we must realize when it comes to praying is that we do not know how to pray like we should be praying. We see that in verse 26. Paul informs us that we are weak when it comes to prayer because we do not know what to pray as we ought. We're stricken with incapacities and limitations and weaknesses to do the very thing that we know we're required to do. And so when we try to pray, our thoughts will wander, our hearts become cold, indifferent, apathetic. Sometimes praying feels just like a mere duty, something uh, that is a burden that we need to get done just to check off for the day. Other times you don't have the energy or even the desire to pray. You do it simply because you have to. There's no sense of joy or delight in your praying seems to do nothing for your soul. And other times when we pray, the overwhelming weight of the burdens that we are trying to carry to the Lord make it so difficult that we don't even know the thoughts to form or the words to say. We move between the pain of of silent sorrows and stumble about in the darkness of our minds. Life is so hard, and so you don't even know how to pray for it. And then there are those times when you are crying out, and it just seems so useless, because the walls of all that is wrong in this world and in our lives and our own sinfulness, they're pressing in upon your soul, so it feels like you never escape and there's no relief in praying from that ache within. Your cries seem to be met with heaven's silence. But in all of our weakness, in all of our incapacities and limitations and coldness and distractions and frustrations in praying, we are not without help. There is a light that pierces the darkness of our weakness. Paul says, likewise, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God helps us 
in our weakness, in our weakness, in our praying. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit of God himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. See, the necessity of prayer is not a burden that we carry alone. The Spirit, God's own Holy Spirit, is coming alongside as the comforter that He is to lift up the burdens that are so heavy for you and for which you are too weak to carry on your own. And notice what Paul says here. He says the Spirit comes alongside to help us in our weakness, particularly our limitations and inabilities when it comes to prayer as we ought. And he does that by actually interceding for us. He intercedes before the Father's throne. He, he pleads and petitions the Father on our behalf. He does this, says Paul with a groaning of wor- that is too deep for words. It's inexpressible. Just as creation groans for that final redemption of God's people, and just as God's people groan for that same glory, as we saw last week early in Romans 8, so the Spirit is crying out on behalf of God's people. He prays the, with inexpressible words. It is the deep mind and the will of God that he is praying for us. It is things far too wonderful for us to even comprehend and imagine. And so when you pray, you may not know what to say or even to think. You may not even pray for the right thing. Because you don't always know exactly what the right thing is. But God does. His Spirit does. And His Spirit always prays in accordance with the perfect will of God. And so His prayers are always answered for you on your behalf. Because while we don't know how to pray as we should be praying, the second thing we see here is that God knows exactly what we need. So in verse 27, Paul says, And He who searches the hearts, knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So God knows what we need because He knows our hearts. He is the searcher of all hearts. So the psalmist writes in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts From afar, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. As God sees into every heart. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He sees our longings and our desires, the cries of our heart. He sees the things we don't want others to see. He does see our sin and our shame. He sees our sorrows and he sees our joys. He sees every limitation, every weakness. He sees how we struggle to pray to him. And he knows what we need even before we ask it of him. He knows how to answer 
every need according to His perfect will. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus asked of His disciples, He says, Which of you, if His Son asks Him for bread, will give Him a stone? Or if He asks for a fish, will give Him a serpent? If you then, who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? But not only does God search our heart and know what we need and know us better than we know ourselves, but He knows the mind of His own Holy Spirit. The triune nature of God the Father Son and Spirit has always been in this eternal harmony. All history was was composed within that harmony of the eternal Godhead. And so the, the plans and purposes of redemption, your redemption, your salvation, were crafted in the unsearchable ages of eternity past. That's the mind of the Spirit that the Father knows, the Spirit that is interceding for you. This intercession of the Holy Spirit on your behalf, it's not something strange or new. The Spirit crying out on your behalf is never rejected by God the Father. His prayers are always heard. They are always answered. His pleas are not unreasonable or insincere in any way. They are always fulfilled because they're always in harmony with God's will. And so while you don't know how to pray for things as you ought, God knows exactly what you need and the Spirit knows how to pray for you and He is interceding for you, which means that we can know something when it comes to prayer. And it's the third thing we see here. We can know that indeed all that happens All the way God answers our prayers do work together for God's good purpose. And so we come to verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Again, this verse is is rather well known by Christians. We often go to it when we encounter those times of sorrow and affliction in our lives or in the lives of others. And while it is full of encouraging truth by itself, it is certainly helpful to see it in this overall context that Paul is addressing here. In fact, if we go back to verse 18, remember what Paul said? He said, for I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul is offering this encouragement to believers who suffer hardship and sorrow in this life, which means all of us. And he he shared how that 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 the glory that is promised us in Christ that is being revealed day by day and which will be finalized when Christ returns, that glory is so great and so wonderful, it's not even worth comparing our present sufferings to it in this current evil age. And so we wait patiently as God's people, as does all creation, awaiting for the completion of redemption when Jesus our King returns. Now, we are weak, particularly when it comes to praying and how to pray in relation to those afflictions and sorrows of life. And so, oftentimes, 
We don't pray for them as we should. Oftentimes, we pray for a particular outcome in difficult situations, and the answer God gives us is not the one we were asking for. And so the suffering in our lives doesn't end. The cancer isn't cured. We don't get the job we were praying for and hoping to get, and things seem to go from bad to worse. Does that mean our prayers failed, that God didn't listen? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It just means what we thought was the right answer wasn't in in accordance with what God had purposed and planned in his will for that particular situation in our lives for which we're praying. And so when we, or what we were asking for, it, it wasn't necessarily wrong or evil or sinful. If you're praying for someone to be cured from a terrible illness, That is a good thing to pray for. We're told to pray for that. But sometimes it doesn't happen because it wasn't what God had purposed and planned. But the Holy Spirit always knows how to pray for us. He knows what is the perfect and unchanging and secret will of God who has sovereignly and lovingly determined all that comes and pass in order that the highest and best purpose for us is achieved. And therefore we can know, as Paul says, we can know that all things really do work together like notes on the page of a symphony for good. Now notice he doesn't say that all things are good. That's not what he's saying. Because sickness and back pain and car accidents aren't good. And unresolved conflicts and injustice in the world and corruption, no, those are not good. Death is not good. But all things working together according to God's determined plan do result in good for those who love the Lord. That is to say, those who are trusting in the grace and mercy of Christ alone. Those who are called by God, says Paul, according to God's sovereign purposes. They have tasted of his grace in the gospel. And so we must ask the question then, what is this good that all things are working towards? What is the good spoken of here? Because if we're to accept verse 28 as actually being an encouragement and a comfort as Paul intends it, we need to know how do the bad things, the evil things, the terrible things that happen in our lives, how can God be using those according to his will for good? Or to put it another way, if we're to understand how the answer to our prayers that isn't always what we were asking, but it was what God had in his mind as being best for us in that situation because it comes from the Spirit's intercession. If we're to know that that answer results in good, how are we to know that? What is the good that he's talking about? Well, goodness is when God's purposes And plans are finally and ultimately fulfilled so that all things function as he designed them to function. So think back to the creation of the world. We're told in Genesis 1, God made the universe and all that is in it according to the word of his power in the space of six days. So what was God's own assessment of all that he made after he made it? What did he say? He said, it was very Good. Genesis one thirty one, And that goodness was not just an outward beauty, though that certainly was part of it, but it was order 
and purpose. Everything was functioning the way it was supposed to function because that is how God had made it. And in doing that, he's glorified, he's magnified. The good order is further reflected by inward goodness. You see, sin had not entered the world yet. The sting of of sin's corruption was not yet felt. And so goodness is the goodness that emanates from God himself. Another way to think of it is rightness or righteousness. Jesus said that a good tree produces good fruit, meaning that the tree is right, healthy, whole. It is functioning as it was designed to function by God. It is fulfilling the purpose for which it was made. But an evil tree, one that is unsound, unhealthy, will produce bad fruit. So when sin came into the world, the bad came with it. The suffering, the sorrow, the evil, the hurt. And Jesus came to restore all things, to make that which is bad good again. To bring healing and health, to bring renewal and redemption, to put all that is wrong back to the right. And so, as we saw last week, that is the very thing for which all creation is groaning. It's, it has this eager anticipation for that to happen. It knows it is coming when Christ returns and all things are made new. And that is a very good thing. It's what we believers inwardly ache for as well. And it is what the Spirit is praying for with groanings that are too deep for words. So that all things are working together towards that end, that good end. That's the will of God. Which means that all the things, even the bad things, the horrible things, the suffering that happens in this world must ultimately, in its end, bring about that ultimate goodness. So think about it this way. All that is evil is fitting together as God planned to bring about evil's own demise. Because God is greater than the greatest evil. And his mercy and love are strong, and they are stronger than any act of hate and sin. And the cross of Jesus is the very proof of that. As Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, he said this to the Jews there in Jerusalem. He said, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The cross was an evil, terrible thing. The cross was the murder of the righteous Son of God. The cross is something for which Jesus in his human nature prayed, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But at the cross, Jesus was delivered up according to, as Peter proclaimed, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. 
Because it was through that sacrifice made for sinners like us that redemption was accomplished and applied to sinners like us. And so all things then are definitely and truly working for our good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so that means that, no, your praying is never in vain, even when you don't get the expected answer or the one that you were asking Because God is still at work, and the good is coming. We don't always get the expected result, but we get the result that we need from our prayers that will bring about the goodness. As children of God, no, we do not know everything, but we do know this truth, that all things work for our good. And the reason we know that is what is what can be found here in verses 29 through 30. So we don't know what to pray because we're weak, we're limited. But God knows exactly what we need. And so we can know then that all things indeed are working together for good, even the bad things. And we know this because God knew us covenantally before we even knew ourselves. And so verses 29 through 30, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, this text is often called the golden chain of redemption. In fact, it's a type of rhetorical device Paul uses that is like a chain to drive home the truth of all these statements, all these blessings of the gospel. And the starting point of that, Paul says, is God's foreknowledge. And what is meant by God's foreknowledge? Does it mean that God knows what will happen before it happens? Well, God does know what will happen before it happens because he is eternal. He exists outside of time and he is the author of time itself. But that's not what the Bible means when it speaks of God's foreknowledge. Because God's foreknowledge is one of the most comforting realities of the gospel. God's foreknowledge has to do with his love, his eternal covenant love for his people. It has to do with a relationship of being known deeply and loved by God so that all that he does is for your good. God told the prophet Jeremiah, for example, in Jeremiah 1.5, he said, before I formed you, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, I loved you. And before you were born, I consecrated, I chose you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. See, knowledge in the Old Testament is always associated with love. And God's foreknowledge is his setting of his affections in eternity past upon all he has chosen to be his people. And we see that truth reflected all through the Bible in the life of Abraham and Moses and the people of Israel. And here we see 
that God foreknew all those whom he saves. And what that means then, if you are united to Jesus Christ, that all these blessings of the gospel that are promised to you were promised to you and made yours even before you had the ears to hear them or the mind to think about them and meditate upon them and to understand them. Before you could cry out, Lord, save me, the love of God was already directed towards you in a very special way. Before you could lift your voice to praise God as your creator and king, he had already determined to make you his own. And so this chain that follows then, this love of God, is a rehearsal of all those blessings of God's covenant love poured upon you if you are a true believer of Jesus Christ. And so he says, first, those whom God foreknew, he predestined or he chose to be conformed to the image of Christ Jesus the Son. Now to be shaped or formed to Jesus' image is to be made righteous or holy like Jesus is. And so a person is accepted by God as a son or a daughter of God because they are conformed to that very image of the Son of God. And of course, you do nothing to earn this. There's nothing that we see here that says, yeah, I deserve this. It is purely based on God's grace, his blessing towards you, that he said, yes, I will make you my own. I will set my covenant love upon you. And so Jesus becomes then the firstborn, he says, of many brothers. Firstborn doesn't mean that there was a time that Jesus did not exist and then he was brought into existence as if Jesus was created. No, Jesus is God. He is eternal. He is God the Son. He always has been. But firstborn is a title of rank, of authority. The firstborn of the family is the one to whom belong all the blessings and all the inheritance of the Father. Israel as a nation was originally called the firstborn of God in the Old Testament. But now Jesus, the true Israel, holds that title of firstborn because it is through him and to him that all the blessings of God's covenant are fulfilled. And so being united to him, the many brothers, thus indicating that Jesus fulfilled the promise of uh, the Abrahamic covenant that all nations would be blessed in Abraham, united to him, all those blessings that belong to Jesus become ours. That inheritance is ours. Because God chose us to be in Christ. That's what it means to be predestined, to be conformed to the image of the Son. And so then, God effectually calls, as Paul says, those whom he predestines, overcoming all the resistances of the sinful flesh, not in a forceful, cruel way, but in a way that shows the beauty of grace to be so overwhelming that we cannot help but come in faith and repentance and believe and rest in the gospel. And he justifies those whom he calls, declaring them righteous. And those whom he declares righteous, he glorifies. And the chain is complete. Redemption is guaranteed. Your salvation as a child of God is an absolute certainty because it is written 
in the foundation of the sovereignty of God and his covenantal love, his foreknowledge of you. And nothing can change or alter those purposes of God. Nothing. (laughs) Not even your failure and your stumbles and your weaknesses when you pray. God still loves you. And he hears you. And since all of this is a certain hope, what that means then is we have a certain hope in our praying. When you pray, no, you don't always know what you should be praying. But remember in that moment that God foreknew you. He had a love set upon you before you even could understand that. And he chose you to be his own and he called you to himself and he justified you, making you his child, guaranteeing that you will be glorified. And he hears then all of your prayers. And his spirit is interceding within your own heart. And in doing that, you're praying is aligning with the very story of redemption itself, stretching back into eternity past. Now, praying isn't just well-wishing or feeling that things will get better. It's the words we cry out in true hope because we belong to the people of God. That's what makes Christian praying true and distinct from any other kind of praying. We know that all things are working for good. That God will fulfill his perfect purposes and promises. And we know that because we know what it means to be redeemed, to have God's love set upon us. And so then pray, pray, and may the Spirit of God knit your heart into that fabric of redemption. Pray even when you don't feel like it, and pray when it doesn't even make sense. Pray in Jesus' name for God's will to be done, and the Holy Spirit will intercede for you so that all things will work for good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We thank you that you have called us to be a praying people, that you have given us this blessing where we might access your very throne and lift up before you these things that are too heavy for us to carry. Father, sometimes we do not even know the words to form, the things to say, but we praise you that your spirit is interceding and you know the mind of your spirit Because you have known us from eternity past, making us your children. So press these truths of the gospel upon our mind. And so compel us and encourage us to always be praying, to be lifting up our hearts to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.